Nelson, co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, wrote in 1952, If we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root some unhealthy dependence and its consequent demand. Wilson suggested that if we could identify and continually surrender these unrealistic and unrealizable demands, that we may then be able to accomplish what he imagined to be the recovery's next frontier, something he called emotional sobriety. Flash forward 70 years and join psychotherapists and best-selling authors Tom Rutledge and Dr. Alan Berger, who have taken up the mantle of exploring Bill Wilson's new frontier. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. Well, hello, everyone. I know you're used to hearing Tom introduce the, the podcast, Emotional Sobriety, but Tom is away this weekend. He's uh, attending the funeral for his brother and there to support his sister. So... First of all, Tom, our condolences go out to you. You know, I love you, man. We love you. And looking forward to your return next week. Um, today is going to be a, I'm very excited about the show because it's going to be a little different. Um, Patrick is coming up on his birthday, Patrick, right? This yep. coming. Yeah, um, I, uh, one day at a time, um, God willing, but um, I will be celebrating four years of continuous sobriety. Four years of continuous sobriety and you've never had that much time before have you in your never no um not since i was probably 16 years old well that's that's a different <laughs> so i mean sobriety then and sobriety now because this one you've worked hard to to create a a solid foundation for your life so so you know what this presented us with is an opportunity you know, to explore emotional sobriety in the first four years of somebody's recovery, you know, what a lot of people consider the first five years as early recovery. So you've, uh, you said, God, I'd be love to share with you guys my journey in emotional sobriety. And so let me turn the show over to you, Patrick, and I'll ask you questions as we go along. But first of all, congratulations. Thank you so much. Um, I know I, uh... what this means to you. I mean, I really do know how much it means to you to to have this experience in your life at this point in time? Sure. Um, you know, uh, it's the framework through which I view so much of uh, my waking life. And um, to the point where I wonder if I'm like overdoing it, you know, I mean, not everything necessarily needs to tie back to recovery, but I think for me, I fear losing it all the time. That's a big driver, I think, of the way I go through life. Um, I don't know how uh, healthy that is, but it's gotten me this far. So we'll see. What I'd like to do is I'd like to take you through a few areas and talk to you about these areas. So, you know, first physical sobriety, right? Before emotional sobriety. What changed for you that you could accept that you have, that you suffer from this addiction? And what, what happened that you made a commitment to your recovery? Do you know what that turning point was for you? Yeah, the turning point was, um, you know, waking up um, one morning on a weekend and I had, uh, it was after a long bender and I had lost uh, my latest job and um, I, uh, my room was a mess and I had also uh, torn up my parents' place uh, partying, um, which I was not living at, but they, you know, I had a key, I could get in and out and whatnot. And I just, you know, um, I, I, I'd either from what I remember, I'd, I'd either 
just finished a call with my mom or um, was uh, became aware of the phone call that had to be made um, where I was yet again needing to be uh, excused, uh, forgiven, um, accepted by my parents who I just were repeatedly um, disrespecting and, uh, you know, alienating with my uh, crazy behavior. And, you know, I just kind of had this like um, vision of a bottom that was far lower where my parents wouldn't be picking up my calls. And um, to the extent that I had any relationships with anybody, those would just evaporate because, um, you know, I just become that kind of like toxic of a person to be around and threatening to, you know, um, you know, I mean, I just think addicts kind of, you know, they, they become like zombies, you know, you just need to put up the fence and keep them out. And uh, I, I just didn't want to lose what little I still had left. And so, um, you know, I, I asked for help. Um, I, uh, you know, I started to see uh, a new therapist. I started to see Alan Berger for addiction issues. Um, I went into a 30 day program uh, inpatient to get a, a foundation at the start of physical sobriety. And I just started, um, started to work the steps and just do the kind of, uh, you know, Coca-Cola classic recovery model just to get started. Well, is, 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 um, I recall it was that moment of surrender for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was a moment, man. I, I recall that very, you were struggling. What do I, what do I, do I really need to go and pay? I mean, do I really need to go to a 30 day program, right? Remember that there was a real struggle for you in terms of, do I really need to do that? And I remember when you just let go. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm happy that you articulated it that way because um, looking back now, I mean, there was no reason not to do it, but like a lot of reasons but, to do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right? So many reasons to do it, but I think, yeah. It, and, you know, just like principally it was um, to take that step was kind of an admission that, okay, I'm really doing this. We're really doing this. And, uh, you know, making the decision that uh, my life is going to change. Um, don't know what's going to happen on the other end, but uh, yeah. And see, I think that's what creates resistance for people. See, at that moment when you're confronted with, I can't keep doing what I'm doing. I know what I need to be doing, but if I let go of this, I don't have anything. I don't have what's coming yet, what's coming next. I know what I've had here, even though it didn't work that great. It was something, right? I had something. And I, I think that there that that creates a lot of resistance for people, man. It's like, if I let go of this, what's going to happen? And that and some of that fear is unconscious, I think. Right. I and, you know, it's uh, it's it breaks my heart a little bit, you know, just thinking of it, because um, it's the refusal to cut the anvil that's uh, dragging you to the bottom of the ocean, you know, because it's the only thing, you know, it's a good analogy because it is right. It is. It's taking you down, but it's all we know, and, and we're holding on to it. That was the, the beginning of you, uh, you know, establishing your physical sobriety. I want to say that it hasn't always been easy, but um, I just had, I've had such miraculous help from people like you, um, from my very supportive family, um, from the kind of like, over time, you know, people came back into my life who I thought were gone for good that really... Um, were rooting for me and uh, showed this kind of like 
incredible capacity for forgiveness and uh, empathy. And, um, you know, like um, it hasn't been like a, a completely unobstructed road, but like, I just feel like, um, man, like my, my just experience of recovery has been like, I've seen, I've seen the best in people more than I've seen the worst in people. And, um, and, you know, I've been encouraged. I feel like consistently throughout to just keep going for it and to not turn back. And, um, you know, like any, any kind of like incentive to return to my old life, that's kind of like, it's a bad deal. <laughs> I just, uh, you know, I, when, and whenever I've played out, you know, kind of those scenarios, I'm like, you know what, that's just, that just doesn't sound very appealing. Um, no, no, I, I hear that you value so much what you have today. And, and that's an important part. I want to stay focused a little bit. See, so what we say is that in, in emotional sobriety, and I'm going to speak about this in general, and we'll bring it back to you here in a minute. See, our relationship to our problems has to shift. We have to look at our problems in a different way. And let's just stay specifically on the first thing, right? You going into treatment and, you know, surrendering to the fact I'm an addict and I need help to establish, you know, my sobriety, to establish being clean and sober. Well, some of the resistance is also, it's related to what we said about the fear about what's next, but it's also related to this weird thing that goes on. You see, uh, the way I describe it to people, Patrick, is, is that our false self says, I shouldn't have this problem. I should be able to figure this out. I yeah. should be master of my universe, right? Right. I, I should be able to handle this. And so the, the mere admission is that I'm unable to seems to take away from us, not add to us. You follow me? It's like it's, it's, it's the false self is saying, if I admit that, it means I'm less than. If I admit that I have this problem, if I admit I need help, if I admit I can't do this, it means that I'm less than. And everything in the false self is to be more than instead right. of less than. Well, that's where I can see I have so much work to do because I still have, I feel like I still have that, you know, um, I still have. Um, it's a big I, deal, man, unraveling yeah. this whole thing and see that first thing is that that first I, I am I think of it sometimes as a moment of grace is where we realize even maybe for a moment that getting help for this doesn't mean that I'm less than doesn't mean that I'm bad doesn't mean that I'm defective it means that I have a disease that I need help to deal with and so all of the judgment and moralizing that can go on with this whole thing can be suspended if somebody can really embrace that idea that this, this alcoholism, drug addiction is a disease. Our brain changes. We're not doing this because we want to. We're doing this because we have to. I mean, we are being controlled by our addiction. But even admitting you're controlled by something seems to take away from the false self. So there's such a quandary at the beginning. And that's why so many people that need help don't get it, Patrick. They can't get over that bump. They can't get over seeing me getting help is really a sign of, of courage. 
right? It's it's a positive thing. It's something to feel good about, not something to feel bad about. But our false self turns that kind of stuff around. And that's what I say. The original gaslighting took place with us. Before we were able to gaslight anybody else, we had to fool ourselves into believing certain things were true that weren't true. And this is one of the big lies, I call it. This big lie that admitting I have a problem, admitting that I have to that I've made mistakes and stuff makes me a mistake. It doesn't. It just makes me human. But I could never get see that as clearly as I can see that today. Right. And I mean, what helps that process along, or at least it did for me, is just the hitting that bottom, that kind of dissolution of the ego to the point, right, where you're, I'm open enough to take those steps. And, you know, but uh, I... I've still got a lot of shoulds and I think well, resistance to the idea that it's not a moral failing, but a disease. I think that's a something I discovered semi recently is that like, I still have, I think some uh, guardrails against accepting that. Well, see, I, I think one of the reasons that, 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 that delusion or illusion persists is that it, it, that's the part of us that's saying, I still want to be able to be in control of everything. <laughs> I still want to be the one that's in control. See, that's what the false self is. Father Richard Rohr called it the imperial self that wants to control everything. I mean, it wants to be the king of the, the king of the universe, right? That kind of master of the universe kind of thing. And, you know, when we step back and look at that, we start to realize, my God, you know, this is why we say that we're megalomaniacs with inferiority complexes. You know, we we think so great of ourselves. And at the same time, we think so little of ourselves. It's a real weird dilemma. But I want to take you to that now. Now shift your your reflections and talk about the relationship with yourself. When you were first getting sober, how did you feel about yourself? What were what were your thoughts about yourself? Um, I, how'd you like yourself? Let's start there. There's a, a detail that uh, surprises me, even as I talk about it, that at least initially, and when I was in rehab, I had this immediate rush of like real positive feeling because, um, I, I didn't, <laughs> I was in a, uh, I was in a facility with a locked door and, um, I had no choice. I, you know, I, I had consigned myself to, this space and doing this work and these, uh, you know, these meetings and, you know, these, uh, these counselors and, um, something, there was some, a feeling of peace I had like right at the beginning, just that came with, uh, live a little bit of a life, you know, even if it's just for these first few weeks, but I think like coming out of rehab and, uh, going to my first few A meetings, uh, back in my neighborhood and not, you know, I didn't have any money at the time. So, uh, I, didn't have any uh, dollars to put in like the, the jar that would, they would pass around at the meetings and stuff. And just kind of, uh, I didn't have a car, you know? So um, uh, I, you know, learned really quickly about the kindness and the generosity of the people that I would go to these meetings with because they would, you know, I would carpool with people and and stuff and get all kinds of uh, help, you know, once I demonstrated that I wanted to, you know, do the work. Um, But uh, I felt uh, my self-esteem was uh, pretty rock bottom um, for a while that first year. You used to tell me we would do ther- I would come to therapy. I had a real problem with eye contact for a while. Like I couldn't look at people um, in the eye. My body language was very like I I just kind of had, you know, right at the end of my addiction, um, 
I had this like pervasive feeling of, I just like had to slink around in the, in the shadows and didn't really like want to exist because I felt like, you know, I, what I'd become, I just hated what I'd become. And I just, uh, couldn't even be in a place and feel normal. That was kind of like the extent to which I had annihilated myself. And, um, so that was what I, what I began with. Um, but, uh, it's just amazing. Like, you know, I, I, I still think it's corny. <laughs> There's like a, uh, you know, sardonic kind of like, uh, putting down myself and others part of me that is still lingering where like when people say, uh, it's amazing what this program can do. I'll, I'll I have a kind of regard that with a bit of skepticism, but it, I mean, it's like it, that has been so true in my experience. Um, you know, just like I could not have imagined how much better of a life I've been able to attain. Um, and it all started with just taking those few steps. Yes, it did. And it's interesting, too, isn't it, that there's still that conflict inside of you. One part of you being sardonic. Kind of a dick, other, yeah. And then the other part, so excited about it. So I see what it's done to my life. But you see, and I want everybody to hear that. See, in our journey, it doesn't mean we become whole right away. And I don't know if we ever become whole. You know, this, this whole issue of integration and integrating the conflicting parts of ourselves. It's very important to pay attention and do that. But it's also important to be aware that it's a lifelong journey to do that. You know, it's still unfolding for you, right? These different parts of you. Right. I, uh, man, it tripped me out earlier this week. I did a workshop uh, with Herb Kagan and um, I was relaying to him. I was having just kind of a bad mood that day. And, uh, you know, um, I just wanted to kind of give him a state of the union to, I, I, you know, I, I just wanted to let him know uh, how I can get sometimes when I'm in a mood. And, um, you know, I, I was honest with him that like, you know what, there's still a part of me that um, finds the idea appealing of just getting a pint of liquor and just like hiding somewhere and just, you know, tuning out and uh, just throwing it all away. Like if, that's not to say that I indulge in that fantasy uh, often. And uh, I know exactly where kind of mulling that will lead. And I quite like the alternative uh experiences that I've uh, been able to cultivate um, over these uh, four years of recovery. But, you know, he, uh, in his very Herb Kagan directness, he's like, well, you know, look, you got to work a better steps nine through 12. And, uh, you know, um, how, uh, how much, how proactive are you being? And, you know, in taking those steps and, uh, you know, I, I didn't take it so much as a, uh, you know, uh, condemnation of the thought, but more of like, the work becomes, you need to work to, to mediate, you know what I mean? That like a uh, very uh, self-destructive negative part of you that um, will always be a part of the sauce, right? It's, it's, it, there's just steps you can take to, uh, to address that and to kind of like put it in its rightful place. Cause in one way, what that part of you is saying is I don't think I can step up and handle this stuff. See, it's, it's a hidden form of, of, of a lack of confidence in yourself. See, that part is saying, be just so much easier to get the pint and hide out. Mm -hmm. And it would be. I mean, there's no question. Listen, you know, part of what changes is, is our idea about, 
you know, that life is going to be difficult. We, we don't shy away from that. We realize is that life is difficult because I don't have all the tools I need to have to deal with life. And that's what makes it difficult. And when we start to accept that, then we can get on with starting to acquire some of those capacities that are undeveloped in us. Well, talk about that. How are you dealing with some things differently for you? I mean, one thing is it's not listening to that thought about going to get the pint. Right. See, and and let me just say, I, I, well, I, I mean, yeah, I, I'm very embarrassed just to have even said that, you know, it's, it, it sucks. Like it's, I just find those ideas well, shameful. There's that should you talked about again. Right. See, I should be more than I am. See, that's what the false self tells us all the time. I'm not enough the way I am. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that you shared that with us. I think it's great. You know, a lot of people out there have these kinds of thoughts and they're too embarrassed or too ashamed to share them thinking it means something's wrong. No, something would be wrong if you didn't share it. I mean, see, that's the issue. Well, right. Bring it out into the light. You see what I mean? See, having it and sharing it shows you you have a, a program of recovery. Yeah, I uh, well, I believe, you know. Uh, talking about answering your question. Yeah. So how do I, uh, what, what are some of the uh, strategies that I deploy? One of the things is you're bringing things into the light that you wouldn't bring into the light. Staying connected. I have a recovery circle and I have a familiar circle and I have a friend circle um, and I have a work circle and um, you know, and I'm, I'm always making sure to check in with those and um, being accountable to those. And um and trying to make myself useful to the people that are connected to me, that care about me, kind of saddling myself with as much purpose as I can uh, in order to, you know, to not wander into a space where I, I, I can only describe it as like a kind of nihilism, you know, that I have, like if I'm, if I'm not um, in the, uh, in the process of, I'm not, if I'm not in, in, in a kind of like action oriented um, headspace, then I can get pretty dark and I um, can start to kind of like get into a mindset where I justify the kind of self-destructive behavior that we were just talking about. Um, so I think that's like the cornerstone. And then, um, you know, attending meetings, physical fitness, um, diet, sleep. Um, creativity, which, you know, luckily for me, um, my creativity and my employment situation kind of intertwined. And I, um, you know, I'm a video editor and I podcast and I write screenplays and I, um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm able to kind of like, not always, but I'm able to satiate kind of like, you know, this kind of creative self-actualizing impulse, um, while at the same time, uh, filling in, you know, submitting a W9 and, uh, you know, kind of adulting in that sense. And um, I, I, I just, I do think these are all related to recovery because they, I, I just like have this feeling four years in of like, I'm actually a person now, or I feel like a person, a person as like when I would was not sober and I would look at pictures of, you know, friends and their families and, or, you know, people, People just engaging the rat race of regular life, you know, that I was not participating in because I was just, uh, you know, 
my whole existence was organized around getting loaded. And there's just like no room to be of use to anybody or to kind of like, you know, be the kind of person that people know or want to know. And um, I just feel like I've moved very far away from that. And it's probably in large part due to me engaging with all those things. Yeah. Well, you know, I go back to what you said about when I first met you, you could not look me in the eye. You were filled with so much self-hate and so much shame about the life you had lived. And, uh, you know, if feedback I'd give you is one of the things that I've seen happen is, is that you've, you've come a long way in accepting yourself and what's going on. You still have some self-hate. I see that. Still have some shame. I see you struggle with that at times. But it's so much, it's so less than what you had before. You know, so much less. And, you know, now, you know, you're really starting to, your potential, your, your, the possibilities for you are really starting to shine. I, um, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, uh, well, man, you've made a big contribution. Just look at what you've done in terms of the support you've given to me and Tom in our quest to kind of get this information out. You know, you're, you're solely responsible for that Institute of Optimal Recovery and, and Emotional Sobriety and having over, what, 60 videos now that thousands and thousands of people are viewing because of you. Because of you. Because you supported us. You put them in there. And you are now, you know, passing it forward, man. You're, you're helping a lot of people by doing that. Did you find when you were, um, let's just say, several years into your recovery, like, was the road in, you know, ahead? Like, did you have a sense of it? Or because I, I feel like I'm at a point now where I know I need to be, I know I need to be in action. And I need, I need to be of service. And, you know, the, I think that the, just being, having an awareness of that and a willingness is uh, enough to um, grease the wheels, you know, to get you moving. But um, I still do have kind of like, there's a fog and I'm not sure exactly what I'm moving towards. And I do have a lot of self-doubt as to what am I going in the right direction. Right. No, look, and I think that that's still unfolding for you. For me, it became quite clear after about a year or so that I wanted to work with people. So my passion and became my purpose in life is to go back to school, become a clinical psychologist and to, you know, help be able to develop the skills and ability to be able to help people, you know, turn their life around. Um, partly because I was so excited about what was happening for me and the gift that my sponsor and many therapists work who worked with me early on in recovery had given me and and I wanted to pass it on and and so that I had that clarity very early on it was it was quite a mountain to climb because I was a high school dropout so wanting to become a clinical psychologist and 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 you know become a PhD in clinical psychology meant a lot of school and if you saw me in high school I didn't care for school at all. It got in the way of partying, you know. I wanted to go put on some rock and roll music or some Motown, you know, and pour some drinks and have a party. I mean, let's let's dance the night away kind of thing, right? That was what I was looking for. So this was a real shift in my consciousness. 
And so I had that clarity about, I didn't know what that would look like, you know, cause look, first I had to see if I could get through school. You know, I didn't, I couldn't rely on any previous experience because I was, you know, I was a total flake in high school. I literally, I went to college with no high school. My first year of high school, even though they passed me, was a joke. I didn't do any work. Mm. Literally, I had no high school education when I started my college career. So it was about making up, right? I had to take like the first English class before you could take the real English class. And I had to take the math class before you could take the college math class. I mean, there was a whole year of preparation to get me ready to, to handle college that I had to go through, which I was willing to, I realized I needed to do that. And then, you know, then the momentum started, but I was clear that's the direction I wanted to go. What I see for you is I think that somehow your life is going to be involved in recovery professionally and to some degree, whether you're going to continue to do podcasts, films, write scripts about recovery or whatever. I just see this as becoming more and more a part of your life. I can't imagine my life without it, without it. I just feel like the strain of not only like pushing back against the demons and reaching out to others and kind of help others extricate themselves from it. So we talked about your relationship to your problem, you know, addiction, your relationship to yourself. Now talk about your relationship with others, especially your romantic relationship, because that's that's been quite a big part of your journey. Yeah, I um, am in a uh, three-year relationship. We just celebrated our anniversary. and um, Congratulations, Patrick and Maddie. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Maddie. Um, and um, it's like, in, in many ways, it just feels like my first real romantic relationship. I think I had a lot of problems with codependency <laughs> with, with prior relationships. And um and that's kind of something I, that there's the aspect of that. I think I bring to all my romantic connections that like, in this case, we're actually, you know, both of us in our own ways, we're trying to, we're just trying to do it for real. And um, I, um, um, I'm fortunate. I mean, like, as we talk right now, um, I feel like uh, it has been an especially wonderful few weeks with you know, with Maddie. And um, I'm just very, I'm very happy I've made it this far. And I hope there's much further to go. But it's been challenging. Um, I, uh, you know, we've done couples therapy. And, you know, we've, uh, um, there's definitely like tension in the relationship between, um, you know, like her priorities and my priorities. And, you know, um, um, and trying to coordinate that and and to figure that out and see, I, I just, I hope everybody can, when Patrick's describing this, that you, that you put that in the context that that is to be expected. See, I consider that to be normal for relationships is that there's no such thing as a relationship that's not going to, you know, create some form of conflict or tension. You know, if, if, if I believe that relationships grow people, they're people growers. And the way they grow people is through friction, right? It's through grinding. And if you don't have that grinding, the relationship isn't going to be of value to you. A lot of people think, well, the grinding makes the relationship not of value. It's not supposed to be this way. 
See, that's another one of those big lies, Patrick. You know, conflict and tension and struggle in a relationship is exactly what's supposed to be happening. And it's happening not because that's the nature of relationship, but that's the nature of us. See, I'm incomplete. So where I'm incomplete is going to be where I'm going to struggle in my relationship with someone. That's where things are going to be difficult. That's where I'm not going to know how to hold on to myself or, or respond to a problem or to deal with a situation. And then I'm going to start to go revert to old ideas, run away. Ah. Wait, wait. So is that to say that relationships that have the most conflict are because the participants have a lot of incompleteness? They have a lot of work to do in terms of growing themselves up. That's well, right. that well, that makes sense for me then. <laughs> I think there's a lot of incomplete. A lot of work to do. I mean, and that's all it means. It doesn't mean it's wrong. But see, people, I think I see a lot of people come up with the wrong conclusion. Wow, there's so much conflict. This is the wrong relationship for me. Now, it may be, but it may be the wrong relationship because you're not ready to do the work that you need to do to, to be right. Now, that's not to say if you're in an abusive relationship and somebody's beating on you, we're not talking about figuring out how to stay in that relationship. You know, you got to look at taking care of yourself first and not, and in those situations where, where somebody is physically, then you say, well, how about emotional abuse? That becomes a little grayer area, right? And somebody being verbally abusive. Yes. You know, you want to clean up that stuff. I don't want to be verbally abused but I also don't want to put all these rules on somebody else and how they have to behave. And this is where not taking things personally. So, you know, if somebody's putting me down all the time and they don't like me, I need to ask myself, what am I doing in a relationship if somebody doesn't like me? I mean, that's a different thing than, than somebody who gets mad at me and says, you're a real asshole burger. You know, that's a different thing. That somebody might call verbal abuse. I say that's just somebody getting mad and doing the best they can to take care of it. So we want to differentiate some of these things out. You know, we don't want people, I don't want anybody to stay in a, in a relationship that that it doesn't have the potential to grow into what it needs to grow into for you. And some relationships don't. There's also thing where things are there's irreconcilable differences. If you want something the other person doesn't want. Trying to stay there and figure that out isn't going to work. If one party wants a child and the other party doesn't, that's not going to turn out very well. My relationship with Maddie, it's the kind of like the most uh, present relationship in my life. It's the one it's she's the person that I probably have the most engagement with um, day in, day out. And so I kind of I don't know. I look at my success in that. Um, I don't know if it's is right or wrong, but it's like it's like a microcosm of like my relation to people. <laughs> in general and how well am I participating in that and how, and, you know, talking about self uh, being of service and, and selflessness, like I'm, I'm pretty, I can be pretty selfish, I think in the relationship. And, um, and I think I'm all, it's always up for debate. Like, you know, how selfish should I be? Or, you know, how, how, um, how giving am I being, you know, to this other person? Um, and, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm still working on it. Like um, I think the jury's still out, but I, uh, I really love her. I think she's so wonderful. You know, like I, I'm just so proud of the time I've spent with her and uh, you know, it's, it's people growers. I, I like that. You know, I mean, I've got a lot of growing to do, but I think I have grown a lot, you know, within this time. 
Well, look, this is, you've hung in there and you've really tried to learn from every, you know, I've witnessed that you've learned from every struggle and every challenge that get, that you get confronted with in this relationship. And I think that that's the key, man, is I say it all the time is stay connected and add more self, you know, stay connected and add more self. Yeah. There's nothing that's going to grow you like to stay connected to a relationship where there's tension and struggle and add more of yourself. hundred percent. And I I didn't want to let this episode pass without observing that um, uh, a little after a year into my uh, sobriety uh, was when the pandemic happened. And um, so most of my time in recovery has been kind of under this unprecedented, you know, in many of our lifetime, it's a stressful situation, um, real frightening situation. And um, I just wanted to get your take on, uh, on it because um, I was talking to somebody about like, well, do you, do you think that a lot of people kind of like relapsed or, you know, they, um, uh, they uh, had an especially rough time with, uh, you know, with recovery during uh, COVID and um, you know, what, what, what came up for me immediately was like, um, there's no good time if you're an addict to, um, you know, put the plug in the jug or it's like, no matter what time it occurs, it's the hardest decision most addicts will ever have to make. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I, I think like it has, uh, it's, it's still ongoing and it's been real, it's been rough. Um, but I'm just, I'm so grateful that I had a little bit of a foundation before. Right. Because I, I, you know, I don't even want to think about like how, uh, how rough it would have been had I not been in my, in this, in this more healthy frame of mind, um, you know, when the pandemic started. So do you ever think of that? Or well, Listen, I would want to ask our listeners, especially those of you that have entered in recovery during COVID and you've gone to virtual meetings, maybe you could share with Tom and I and Patrick what that's been like for you. Um, for me, I, I see it as a mixed bag, right? As most things are, right? The mixed bag being... There's nothing like the face-to-face contact, sitting down across from someone, being in the same room, being present with them, and talking to them about what's going on in their life. There's a power to that. I think that I wasn't sure that being virtual would capture that same energy, and I think it's close. I think it's 99% there most of the time for me. The mixed bag part is, is that I do think that there's some people have had a harder time because when I walk into a room virtually, there's not somebody that's going to come up to me after the meeting and say, hey, Al, let's go have a cup of coffee, right? At least I haven't found a way to do that virtually. No, they're working on it, probably. You know, they're working on it. But see, I think that's the missing piece. If a newcomer comes into a meeting bunch of people are going to be around them afterwards, talking to them, making sure they get numbers and stuff. That still happens to some degree, but not in the same way I think that it happens when, when we're live. So I think that's a negative, right? The positive that I see is that our world of, meaning the number of possibilities of attending meetings has just exponentially increased. You know, we see this in my, in the Thursday night emotional sobriety meeting I started. 
you know, I could have started that meeting in Westlake and maybe I got 10 or 15 people. We get between 150 and 200 people showing up from all over the world. Well, how would that have happened if we weren't virtual? It wouldn't have. See, and that's to me, the other thing is that especially for this emotional sobriety stuff, I think the word is spreading a lot quicker because of COVID and because we've been virtual. I've given more presentations on emotional sobriety the last two and a half years than I've done in, in probably the last 10 years of my career. I mean, think about that. And I speak a lot, right? It's incredible. I, mean, I speak a lot before this. And now, you know, on a regular basis, I'm talking about emotional sobriety, you know, in a public forum, at least 10 times a month. That was never the case before, maybe two times, maybe three times. So that's the other part of this is that I think that that it's given us, you know, I've gotten to speak at meetings. I, I spoke at a meeting in, uh, you, you know, over in the Middle East a couple months ago. That would have never happened. I was invited to talk about emotional sobriety there. So that's the, to me, the mixed bag part of this. I think in terms of that, it's really given you and I and Tom and you know, all the people that are interested in emotional sobriety, a forum to be able to carry this message in an unprecedented way. It's the rare time when everybody kind of stopped and reflected and started to ask some new, new questions. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for opening up your heart and your experience and your and your life to us. Um, it's really great, man. I appreciate you being who you are. Uh, man, I, I so appreciate, uh, you know, uh, you walking through this with me and um, I I would like the unfolding to continue. You know, I like that word you use unfolding. I don't want to be the same guy sitting here at the mic. Well, the next year we'll talk about it and we'll talk about the changes from this one to next year. And when we're doing this podcast, because there will be changes, man. Look, to me, five years was an incredible shift for me in my recovery. I think I started to get rocketed into the fourth dimension from year five on, you know, because of all the work I had done in the first five years started to really pay off. I'll continue that momentum. Yes. All right. Until next time. Until next time. Tinge your life. Tinge your myth. Cultivate your narrative with whomever you're with. Then with glass in hand and children on one knee. Bring some stories. Bring your stories back to me It ain't a crime to be a human Never be ashamed to be yourself Rest assured that whatever you're doing Will entertain me like nobody else So here's to us, my old friends Till it's time to drink the wine and break the bread again With glass in hand and children on one knee Bring some stories, bring your stories back to me